Let's pray. God of all glory and grace, we kneel before you again, asking you to give us grace to trust you more. In your unfathomable love, you've revealed yourself in your word. You manifested yourself perfectly in the God-man, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and rose again so that in him we can have righteousness, we can have new spiritual life, that we can be restored to you, God. Thank you for the amazing privilege of being a part of your body, the church. Thank you for the privilege of gathering in your name today of speaking truths, of reading your truth, of singing your truth together. Use it to glorify yourself in our hearts and to shape us to be more pleasing to you. In the name of our Lord we pray, amen. What courage is there to be found in knowing Christ Jesus as Lord? What rest is there to be found in knowing Christ Jesus as Lord? What comfort, what certainty, what conviction? The world builds its house on sand, and then when the trials of this world come, it is smashed flat. But to have your life built on the certainty that God has made you his own through faith in Jesus Christ is a rock, a solid rock of certainty. And he proves himself over and over again. You feel the waves of your own sin and selfishness of persecution, of of the simple suffering that we all have because of the fall of this earth, and those waves crash against your house again and again and again. Guess who is a sure foundation again and again and again? Who is going to do what he promises and bring you home? The Jesus who has made you his own. Amazing, isn't it, that we come before God gathering as his people with all of our cares and concerns, and God gives us his word, even songs that we sing based on his word, to reassure us again, I am God alone, and if I have made you my own, I will never let you go. You might be here this morning not knowing what that's like. And so as you listen to the truth of God's word, we plead with you to submit to God on his terms. Now let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 7. We're in a section in Acts 7 where we have been talking about the life of Stephen, a pivotal man for a pivotal moment in God's work through his early church. And so just to catch you up to where we are, I'll ask a few brief questions and then review something else we talked about last week. 
So what was Stephen accused of in his ministry to the Hellenistic Jews? Well, Stephen was accused of blaspheming both Moses and God by supposedly speaking against the Mosaic law and speaking against God's holy temple. What seems to be Stephen's focus in his response? We've already gotten into Stephen's response to the Sanhedrin, whom he has been brought before, and they've said, are these things true? And so Stephen begins to give a response, and here's how he responds. Stephen, to people kind of like us probably, to people who know the history of what God has done even better than we do, Stephen gives a historical review for the purpose of setting them straight, not only in terms of what he actually believes, contrary to their accusations, but even more particularly setting them straight in terms of their own standing before God. That's where Stephen's heading. So that this final question, where is Stephen ultimately heading in this long response that he gives, which is 50 verses, <laughs> 53 verses? I don't have it on the screen, so you'll have to turn to Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 53 to be reminded where Stephen is heading. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Of course, he's referring to Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Messiah, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That's where he's heading. If we're attentive to the progress of Stephen's speech as it builds to this climax, we will not view this as overly harsh or especially not as vindictive. Instead, what Stephen produces is true and faithful and even loving. It's loving because it's a warning to those who continue to demonstrate that they are rejecting their own Messiah. Our application of the text, then, should also match the tone of the text, which is a very serious warning, that all the privileges of association with God's people and participating in their place and in their practice of worship and even having knowledge of the Holy Scriptures will not insulate you from idolatry and rejecting God. If you're not worshiping God on His terms, you're not worshiping God. You must respond to God's saving grace through Christ alone. In his historical review last week, we looked at verses 2 through 8 and verses 9 through 16. And so I'll just show you again what I, what I mentioned last week. Maybe this is helpful to you because it is to me as we move through this in segments to think of the key figure, the key feature, and the focus. And so in verses seven or 2 through 8, the key uh, figure is Abraham. The key feature is God's promise and God's prediction of what would take place with Abraham's descendants. And the focus is God graciously initiating a special relationship and covenant with Abraham and his descendants. And then he moves into a section that where the key figure is Joseph. And the key feature is God's providential care for his people. He rescues Israel's descendants through their own sin against their brother Joseph. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The focus is God continuing to fulfill his prediction and his promise. And now in the third and longest section, which begins at verse 17 and goes all the way through verse 41 or verse 50, the key figure is Moses. 
The key feature is God raising up a deliverer. And then we'll see the pattern, the type, the fulfillment in Christ. And the focus then is the connection to the Messiah. So the pattern of Moses is the pattern, is the type of Jesus juxtaposed to another pattern of rejecting an idolatrous people. We'll break the Moses part down into a, a two subsections and then also a third section about the temple. The first one is the historical review of God raising up a deliverer in Moses. The second beginning at the important turn in verse 35 where Stephen begins to apply his argument His argument from this historical review, the pattern of rejecting Moses, is repeated with God's Messiah. Out of this section where Israel responds with rejection and idolatry flows another section concerning a right view of the temple. So let's look at verses 17 to 34 where uh, Stephen portrays Moses as God's deliverer. This portion of Stephen's speech will carry us in transition from Moses to the earliest years concern, or from Joseph, I'm sorry, to the earliest years concerning Moses, to a dramatic event when he's aged 40, and to another critical event when he is aged 80. So please begin following with me in your Bibles at verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. The time of the promise drawing near is a reference to things Stephen related earlier, that God promised and predicted to Abraham that his multiplied descendants would first be enslaved, but then that God would bring them out from captivity to the land of Canaan, and they would worship him there. But in the flow of Stephen's historical narrative, what happened when the faithfulness of Joseph was forgotten in Egypt? All gratitude and loyalty was forgotten as well. And so in verse 19, this new Pharaoh dealt shrewdly with our race, Stephen, our race. Remember, he too is a Hebrew. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. Because the Hebrews were blessed by God and increased in number and in strength, the Egyptians feared them and turned them into slaves. That fear continued to increase because even this, turning them into slaves, didn't slow their multiplication or their strength. So Pharaoh devised another plan to weaken them, which was to not allow male infants to live. Because the Hebrew midwives would not do this wicked thing and kill the male infants, Pharaoh issued an edict that his own people should help them exterminate the male infants by casting them into the Nile, Exodus 1, 22. Can you imagine how hard they must have tried to keep their infants hidden from the eyes of the Egyptians? It was into this context where Moses was born to a Levite couple. Acts 7, 20 to 22. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. Our children beautiful in the sight of God. Who conceives children and knits them together in the womb. A good and perfect heavenly father. And this Moses was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. 
Many of you know that Stephen summarizes the process in which Moses' own mother can't hide him anymore. Then she places him in a basket, a basket made into a little ark to float on the Nile, and how his sister is instructed to follow behind this floating basket. When Moses is discovered by a daughter of Pharaoh, she decides to save the child and adopt him, but his big sister is there to offer to find a Hebrew woman, his own mother, to care for him until he is old enough to be weaned and then return to, the, to Pharaoh's household. Although the book of Exodus doesn't speak of it, Stephen briefly mentions Moses' Egyptian education and his pedigree, something that was well understood in Jewish tradition. It's noteworthy that Stephen doesn't embellish. As writers of the time were prone to do with such magnanimous figures as Moses, Stephen doesn't embellish. He sticks to what the scriptures reveal and to what is common knowledge. It would have been typical in Stephen's day, and as we have examples of in writing, exaggerated stories about the uniqueness of Moses' birth elaborate details as to the extent of his Egyptian education, and even supposed legendary exploits as an Egyptian general. Instead, Stephen likely mentions this to demonstrate how God uniquely preserved and prepared this one who would serve as his messenger of deliverance. Although we find out later that Moses thought himself ill-suited to the task The biblical historian's hindsight sees the fingerprints of God throughout these earliest years. Now, when Moses is 40 years old, a critical event takes place, which will not only remove him from favor in Egypt, but shows Moses' compassion for his own people and will also preview Israel's response to his leadership. Pick up with me in verse 23 now of Acts chapter 7. When he was 40 years old, It came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, You're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So Moses knows that the word has not only spread among the Jews already, but the word has undoubtedly spread to Pharaoh. At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So this action of protection not only led to disdain rather than gratitude among the Hebrews, but it also meant that Moses' own life was threatened by Pharaoh. Moses flees to live in Midian for 40 years, and there he marries Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro, and he fathers two sons. After 40 more years, another critical event takes place. So this time, it's God's direct intervention to send Moses back to Egypt as his agent of deliverance. Verse 30, now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. 
When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. Did you notice upon previous reading of the Exodus narrative that it seems to have been the messenger of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, which appears in the flame of fire in a bush? I wonder if there wasn't an observable figure of some kind in the flame, such as is the case as there is in other cases of Old Testament theophanies of the messenger of the Lord. Regardless, when Moses is aware that this voice is is that of God, he's afraid to look on God. This section from Stephen on the words of God is nearly a direct quotation from Exodus 3, 5 through 8. Only in the original, the holy ground statement precedes, I am the God of your fathers. Not only is God presented here as holy, but he's a compassionate God toward his chosen people. He's a God who is faithful to his promises. Moses is chosen to be his messenger of deliverance. All of this review concerning Moses has been building to this point, God's chosen deliverer. But it is also at this point in Stephen's speech where the the subtle hints of Israelite rejection will be made plain and connections to the Messiah are unveiled. I'm calling this next section of verses like Moses, like Jesus, a rejected Savior. For Stephen, and also for Luke, this is the spot in Stephen's rhetoric where the proverbial rubber meets the road. After Moses, as God's man for the Exodus, Stephen becomes more transparent in connecting Moses to Jesus. Look at verses 35 to 41. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. So that's a reference to Moses receiving the law. He received living oracles to give to us. You hear Stephen's respect for the law. More on that in a minute. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, this Moses, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As as for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. 
Did you know that if you go back and review this period of the Exodus at the time that God had already given Moses the instruction concerning the law and Moses had already started talking to them about the law before Moses goes back up on Mount Sinai to receive the actual tablets and Moses starts receiving during this 40-day period that he's missing. He's receiving not only instructions about the law, he's receiving instructions about the tabernacle that's going to be built. He's receiving instruct like really detailed instructions about the tabernacle. He's receiving instructions about the kind of clothing that the priest should wear, Aaron and his sons. He's receiving all these things from the hand of God in detail, being shown every single thing during that brief absence of 40 days. They decide to turn to the gods of Egypt. Again, as I promised to bring up again, that Stephen mentions these living oracles. Rather than belittling the law, Stephen has a high regard for it in its proper place, as we shall see. The people have already rejected Moses back at verse 27, but he does, in fact, become their ruler and even judge. The Lord uses him to redeem, to deliver the people out of slavery through signs and wonders. He is a prophet, and he's a prototype of the coming one, whom he himself foretells, we see in these verses. He mediates between God and the people, receiving and then giving the words of life. And yet he is still rejected by the people, and they turn instead to idolatrous worship of false gods. It really should be clear that Stephen is arguing for Moses as a pattern, which we also call a type, that is fulfilled in the Messiah, who is Jesus. And that, that Israel of the time is a pattern fulfilled in the leaders of Israel at present. Not only is Christ the obvious referent of Moses' words that God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, to whom they should indeed listen, Deuteronomy 18, 15, but consider the pattern fulfillment in all of these parts. The rejected Jesus is in fact ruler and judge permanently in a much more complete sense even than Moses. He performs signs and wonders to prove that he is the deliverer who was to come. Who makes the lame walk again and the blind to see and the mute to speak and the deaf to hear? Who casts out demons without any fanfare but but just a word? Who says your sins are forgiven? Who dies Who raises people to life? Who himself dies on a cross and then rises again and appears to many? Even as Christ's redemption is yet of greater significance than that of Moses, Christ mediates between God and man with not only words of life that fulfill the very spirit and the purpose of the law, but also giving spiritual life that is needed for a perfect and permanent restoration to God. But true to the pattern of these Israelites of old, Stephen's audience persists in rejection of their Messiah. What Stephen continues to show then is that rejecting God's messenger is equivalent to rejecting God's leadership. Remember that when Israel wants a king, God will tell them, I'll give you a king, but just so you know, that's worse, not better. Because rejecting God's messenger is rejecting God, which leads inevitably to idolatry. 
Their idolatry is shocking, as it should be. After all, who is Israel without God? Think about that. Who is this little bitty nation without God? Who are we without God? As we continue, we see Stephen's argument that his present audience is continuing to fulfill the pattern of what took place in Israel's previous idolatry. So this is their idolatry versus God's real purpose for the temple. Verses 42 to 50. Take particular note from what we just read, the phrase at the end of verse 41, that they were rejoicing in the works of their hands because it cannot be a coincidence in connection with Stephen saying about the temple that, quote, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, verse 48, or that his quotation, which we'll read from Amos, references the tent of Moloch, verse 43, in Israel's idolatry, after which Stephen introduces the fact that God had even given them the tent of witness, meaning the tabernacle, in verse 44. So pay attention to the connection between this idolatry versus what God actually intends for the temple. Verses 42 to 44, but God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephon, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed them to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Because of their idolatry at the foot of Sinai, while God was giving Moses the law and many other instructions, we see that God's response is to judicially give them over to the sin that they want, and their idolatry persists for generations. They would begin and continue with waves of worshiping the false deities of the nations around them, particularly those rep represented here, Stephen says, in the host of heaven, meaning the worship of the sun moon, stars, and the planets. Stephen quotes from Amos, who mentions two specific pagan deities. Moloch, we believe, was the Canaanite god, the Canaanite sun god. But Rephon is less certain. It, it's possible that it could be connected with Repa, the Egyptian name for Saturn. But the point is that they worshiped the creation rather than the creator. Does that phrase sound familiar to you from Romans chapter 1? Verse 25, worshiping the creation or the creature rather than the creator. Because of this ongoing rejection and idolatry, God disciplined them, sending them into exile. And now where the original text says beyond Damascus of this exile, because in the context of Amos, he's primarily talking about the Assyrian exile, which would have been the northern tribes of Israel, Stephen broadens it to, to, to say Babylon because he wants to catch not only the first exile of the northern, northern tribes of Israel, he wants under Assyria, but he wants to include the later exile of Judah into Babylon. All of them are disciplined by God for this idolatry. And now Stephen further draws attention to the fact that this rejection leading to idolatry was, was even in the context of Israel having the tent of witness the tabernacle in their midst. And he uses it to carry forward the history 
from tabernacle to temple. Beginning at verse 45, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Contrary to the accusation, Stephen shows his respect for the tabernacle and the temple as God's sacred meeting place with Israel. He traces the history through Joshua, bringing the tabernacle into the promised land and to the, all the way up to the days of David when he desired to make a permanent house for the Lord. And God did allow Solomon to build a temple, but did you know that Solomon himself acknowledged its limitations? Let me read to you 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27 where Solomon says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. So although Stephen respects the temple, even as he respects the law, he points to the fact that the most high God cannot be confined to a house made by human hands. And he quotes the prophet Isaiah in, in chapter 66, verses 1 and 2, where God himself is speaking. God's hands made all things. How can he be limited to only some particular place of worship on the earth? Stephen seems to understand that the tabernacle, the temple, symbolizes God's presence with his people and that God was providing them a place to, to serve as their center of worshiping him. But worship of God was never meant to be confined only there. What's more, having the tabernacle didn't prevent idolatry. Neither has the existence of the temple. Instead, Stephen's listeners are elevating the temple itself to a place that it ought not to have, meaning that the temple can become to them an idol. Don't worship the meeting place instead of the God who meets us here. But in fact, God isn't limited to only meeting us here or limiting our worship of him to the temple. In fact, the temple can't last forever. The temple points to something greater to come. And that something greater has now come and is now here through the one who is Messiah and Lord, Jesus Christ. The bottom line, even having the law in the temple hasn't prevented you from rejecting the Messiah. Instead, you have made idols out of religion and idols out of a place of worship. It becomes a little more clear now how Stephen has led up to this climax of verses 51 to 53, which we'll have to save for next time, and, and, and also how they respond to his climax. But the warning and the question from our text today seems to be, are you rejectors or are you receivers of God's truth? If even God's chosen people, Israel, couldn't get this right, 
with all the proof of God's presence with them and for them. Surely we are all idolatrous rejectors of God. We need God's intervention. We needed God to intervene through Jesus Christ. You need God to intervene in your heart so that the fulfillment of the new covenant will be that he will give us new hearts of flesh instead of ones of stone, that by his spirit we may respond to him in faith. See, in the context of these many verses that we've covered this morning, we see that all the privileges of association with God's chosen people and participating in their place and in their practice of worship, yeah, we're talking to us, aren't we? And even knowledge of the Holy Scriptures will not insulate you from idolatry and rejecting God. If you're not worshiping God on his terms, you are not worshiping God. You must respond to God's saving grace through Christ alone. Now is the time to repent of worshiping and trusting in anything other than God. And God says the only way to be right with him is to embrace Jesus as Lord. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law, and he became the perfect sacrifice, and he rose again so that through him we might have direct access to God, better than a temple. Will you receive him? For those of us who For those of us who are amazed at our salvation by grace and know that we are his own possession, we stand in awe of God, knowing that we are now under the law of Christ and that we ourselves are the temple of God's presence on earth by the Holy Spirit that he has placed within us. We gather together in worship not because this place is God's house, but because God has made us his house. Let us be a holy house of God's work. Let us be a holy house of God's work. Not just when we're gathered here, but when we disperse from here. People who do not worship the creation, but the creator. Who do not worship religion, but the one who rules over all. who do not limit God to our locale, but being people who are spreading the kingdom of Jesus out from among us. Let's pray. Father God, it does feel like we ran fast through some verses 
of Stephen preaching in a section that was about Moses, God's deliverer for that time, and and the connection to, to Jesus being the ultimate deliverer and Jesus being the ultimate temple, and now the metaphor used again even as we see in the New Testament that we have become your temple, God. And the overall movement of all of that just washes over us, your perfect plan, our inclination to to reject you and to make idols out of everything, even things that you gave us for our own good. We will make idols out of the law and idols out of the temple because, God, we are blind and we are hard-hearted unless you give us new hearts. And so we plead for your mercy to give a new heart to each one who is listening to the truth of your gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. And God, even as we concluded this morning, we know that even as you save us by your grace, we need you to sustain us by your grace. We are not holy in any way apart from you, and so we need your Holy Spirit in us to keep us set apart for for you. And even though we are not of the world, we are in it. And so help us to spread the gospel of your kingdom. Thank you for the hope and the comfort and the courage you have given us that you will build your church. And that no matter what Satan, no matter what Satan and and all the rest of your enemies do, you will prevail. We thank you for your faithfulness and your love to us. In Jesus' name, amen.